So let's just go through this article and take a quick look. It says, U.S. Mormons still have more children than other Americans do, but their families are not as large as they used to be. First, let's look at fertility in previous generations. According to research from the 2016 Next Mormon Survey, NMS, today's Mormon adults grew up in families of 4.02 children. This was higher than the national average, and depending on the year, sometimes significantly so. For example, we have LDS and national data from the early 1980s that indicates that when Americans as a whole had a total fertility rate of 1.81 children, Mormons were having an extra kid and a half, a 3.31 fertility rate. Here's what that looks like. Now, for those of you who are watching the live stream, you'll see that there's a chart here. Total fertility rate, hypothetical lifetime births per woman. So it looks like 1960, it hit its peak for, this is Mormon fertility. Th about 3.7 children per woman were born. And then 1970, I guess 1981, it was 1.81 children. It hit its low at like 1977, I guess. And right now it looks like it's at about 2018, it's 1.73 children per woman. But I was just talking about this earlier. I knew this woman, this Mormon woman, I worked with her, really, really nice lady. And she was from a family of like eight kids or something like that. There were a lot of children in that family. And I think she grew up to have like six kids of her own or something like that. Just anecdotally, I've known Mormons have a lot of children. They have a lot of children. Now, this isn't really a unique situation or an unexpected situation because Mormons have historically, the leadership of the church has historically been very opposed to birth control. In fact, the article goes on to talk about it here. Let me just give this a read. It says, Mormons, it seems, held out past the time other Americans began to routinely use contraception. Much of this has to do with the unambiguous anti-contraception messages LDS leaders were sending to members even after the pill had been legalized. In the 1960s and 70s, LDS leaders still regularly spoke out against birth control. In 1969, for example, the First Presidency counseled church members as follows. We seriously regret that there should exist a sentiment or feeling among any members of the church to curtail the birth of their children. We have been commanded to multiply and replenish the earth that we may have joy and rejoicing in our posterity. For reference, posterity, I actually looked this word up earlier because I've heard it, but what did it mean? It, it means all future generations of people, FYI, if you were wondering. So they're saying, we have been commanded to multiply and replenish the earth that we may have joy and rejoicing in future generations, basically. And then it goes on to say, where husband and wife enjoy health and vigor are free from impurities that would be entailed upon their future generations. It is contrary to the teachings of the church artificially to curtail or prevent the birth of children. We believe that those who practice birth control will reap disappointment by and by. So this is from the 1969 presidency, I guess. That's who wrote all that stuff. It goes on to say, if this language sounds unusually formal for the 1960s, that's because the announcement was based on an earlier and considerably more incendiary statement from President Joseph F. Smith in 1917. Now, I just want to make note of something real quick. 1917 Joseph F. Smith is not the same as 1830s Joseph Smith. The founder Joseph Smith purported to find the gold plates in 1822, I think. Didn't dig them up till 1824. I could be wrong here, but I, I'm pretty sure that's right. And then really started to dig in with Mormonism from there. And 
got real it got started to get really big over the next decades and then he died in 1844 i just looked that up earlier so now we have a joseph f smith that's kind of running the church in 1917 and it says he made a considerably more incendiary statement uh, the article goes on to say 1917 was not coincidentally the same year that margaret sanger launched the birth control review and served a month in prison for opening the nation's first birth control clinic. Contraception was very much in the news. I'm going to get to that in a second. We'll continue with the quote. It says, here's Joseph F.'s quote from a century ago, with the italicized parts being the fiery rhetoric that the first presidency quietly dropped in the 1969 version. I regret, I think it is a crying evil that there should exist a sentiment or a feeling among me any members of the church to curtail the birth of their children. I think that's a crime wherever it occurs, where husband and wife are in possession of health and vigor and are free from impurities that would be entailed upon their posterity. I believe that where people undertake to curtail or prevent the birth of their children, that they're going to reap disappointment by and by. I have no hesitancy in saying that I believe that this is one of the greatest crimes of the world today, this evil practice. Now, I was just saying a minute ago, this isn't talking about abortion. This is talking about birth control. We have this, this political party in the U.S. that is both opposed to abortion and they're opposed to contraception. Now, I understand there's a debate to be had about abortion. I, I get it. I understand why people would be upset by that. I understand why there's a debate. I personally think that abortion's going to happen whether we like it or not. In fact, there's evidence for that. Abortion is outlawed in some areas in the world. And guess what? It just goes underground. They do it in dangerous and unsafe ways. That's what happens. And criminalizing it more isn't going to stop it, period. It's just not going to stop it. So how do we stop abortion? If this political party in the U.S. wants to stop it, how do they do it? What's the best way to prevent it? It's the one thing that they're doing the exact opposite of. They're stigmatizing and ostracizing birth control and contraception. Why? I don't understand. Why are they doing this? This is not helping. This is not helpful. This is doing more damage. In school districts that teach abstinence only, pregnancy and abortion rates are higher than they are in other districts. If they want to stop abortion, if they're really worried about it, if they're honestly and genuinely worried about it, then why are they trying to stop contraception at all costs? It doesn't make sense. We should be outfitting people with the tools that they need to prevent it from happening in the first place. Anyways, this article goes on to say, you can see the evolution here. Even though the 1969 statement is unequivocal in encouraging church members to avoid birth control, leaders have effectively decriminalized the practice compared to the church's earlier position. The 1969 statement was also followed by a list of certain allowances. Husbands should respect their wives' limitations and wishes about family size. Women's health should be a primary concern, etc. Okay, those seem like legit things. But let me just go back up here for a second. In 1917, Margaret Sanger launched the Birth Control Review and served a month in prison for opening the nation's first birth control clinic. That seriously, I, I don't understand where all of these ridiculous ideas and fears and beliefs come from about birth control. You don't want to have a child. Is that wrong? Is it wrong to not want to have a child right now? Or at all? 
What's so wrong about that? It just blows my mind. It says, gradually in the 1980s and 1990s, LDS leaders stopped overtly preaching against birth control, even though they still promoted the importance of children. In the 1998 handbook, contraception is considered to be a matter between the couple and the Lord, and church members are advised not to judge each other about it, as if. That don't ask, don't tell approach has effectively been the church's policy for the last 20 years. It's interesting that they have that position now, that whole don't ask, don't tell, it should be between the couple and the Lord situation, but it's still stigmatized heavily among people. The reason I say that is because Jehovah's Witnesses have this whole thing about blood transfusions, and I've, I've talked about blood transfusions with Jehovah's Witnesses before, but they really refuse to take part in, in anything to do with blood transfusion. So medical advances have created medicines out of blood fractions, right? So there are different portions to our blood. There are different, there's, you know, hemoglobin, white blood cells and red blood cells and all kinds of different parts, platelets and things like that. And we've actually made medicine out of that. So how do Jehovah's Witnesses feel about that medicine? It's banned. They're not allowed to use it. Now, as time has gone on, they have lightened up a lot on that. And they've said using medicine that is made with blood fractions is not outright banned, it's a conscience matter. Just like they're saying here for uh, for Mormonism, contraception is considered to be a matter between the couple and the Lord. Jehovah's Witnesses say the same thing about certain medicines for blood transfusions. It's still heavily stigmatized. They still don't take it. If you don't outright say, yes, you can take this medicine now, or yes, you can have blood transfusions, which they would absolutely never say, then it's stigmatized. It's part of the culture. Whether the church is saying you shouldn't or not, it's still part of the culture, and the, the leadership of the church is the only group that can change that. It's the only people who can change that stigma because everybody's following them and hanging on their every word. That's how churches work. So it continues on to say that don't ask, don't tell approach has effectively been the church's policy for the last 20 years. Its effect shows up clearly in the data. The NMS had three questions related to fertility patterns. The aforementioned question about the size of respondents' families growing up, another about how many children respondents have had themselves, and a third about what they consider to be the ideal family size, regardless of how many children they've actually had. Then it goes on to say, from the second question, we can see that Mormons are having fewer children than they used to. Gen X Latter-day Saints, who were ages 37 to 51 at the time of the 2016 survey, and had therefore mostly completed their childbearing, showed a significant drop in family size. 57% of Mormon Gen Xers have had zero, one, or two children of their own. So it looks like things are moving in the right direction with it. We have a population problem and things, and... Honestly, if kid, if people want to have that many kids, that's their thing. That's okay with me. I'm totally 100% fine with people having that many kids. My real issue is with the fact that a church has been pushing people to have lots of kids up to this point, or at least slowly just backing off of the fiery, incendiary rhetoric about it. And it's kind of out of the people's hands at that point. In large part, it's a control method for people to push them to have as many kids as they can. It's, it's also been very useful to reproduce and bring in new members of the church that way since it's harder to bring them in from the outside. 
I feel like I don't talk about fellow podcasters enough. Honestly, there's this there's this former Jehovah's Witness, uh, this ex-Jehovah's Witness podcaster. I've never heard of the guy before. He just popped up in one of my feeds. I don't know where I found it, but I guess his name, he goes by Shunned. That's the name of the podcast. And I figured I, I, I'd just kind of go through this article and talk about him a little bit because he seems pretty legit. Now, like I said, I've never given it a listen before, but why not talk about a fellow Jehovah's Witness? Or, I'm sorry, a fellow ex-Jehovah's Witness. So let's give this article a read. It says, this is part of a two-part feature about a Louisville man who is a shunned former Jehovah's Witness. It says, when Mike Shemwell was a child, he, has, he was no different than any other. He liked sports, hung out with his brother, went to school in fall and winter months, and played outdoors in the summer. But when he was eight, his life took a drastic turn, something he never saw coming, nor will he ever quite forget. His parents joined the Jehovah's Witness religion. Shemwell refers to it as a cult, taking Shemwell, his brothers, Matt and Stephen, and his sister Elizabeth with them. For the next 30 years, Shemwell's life was devoted to serving the religion. At times, he worked three part-time jobs just to be able to work his schedule around the 90 hours he spent on the streets, knocking on doors, and trying to recruit new Jehovah's Witnesses. So the fact that he was doing it for 90 hours per month, it looks like. 90 hours per month is what a special pioneer used to do. I think the numbers may have changed at this point, but you kind of commit to doing it 90 hours a month for a year. So that's probably what he was doing. And I I remember that too. I remember going knocking on doors every week of my life. It was... It was interesting. It taught me how to improvise in many ways. I can probably thank my experience as a little Jehovah's Witness kid for my public speaking abilities now, if you'd call them that. Anyways, it says, in 2015, he and his wife, Jenny, escaped. Today, Shemwell, now 41, hosts a podcast called Shunned, through which he not only tells his own story, but allows guests to tell their stories about escaping religious cults and other oppressive situations podcast has more than 100,000 unique downloads, and Shemwell has found himself a guest on several other such shows. The number of those excommunicated, often by choice, from such religions is growing, Shemwell says. He wants to help people not only escape their situations if they so desire, but also to heal once they've moved into a more normal lifestyle. For the Shemwells, they've faced a life of never seeing or hearing from their families again when, he, when they left. They faced a world in which they had no friends, but they've not only survived, they've thrived. They now have a legion of friends, ironically, in people they knew before they were disfellowshipped from their religion as clients of their cleaning business. They visited Niagara Falls and hiked in Adirondacks. They live a happy American life, but from the time Shemel was eight, life was not so free, nor was it always happy. Yeah. You know, honestly, I'm really glad to hear stories like this. Uh, 100,000 unique downloads. That's a lot. That's really, really good. I don't know how you tell if they're unique downloads or not, though, honestly. My, like, I, I run the podcast on SoundCloud and and some other systems. I've never seen an analytic that will tell you unique downloads. I've seen downloads total, but 100,000 is really, really good. I'm going to have to get in touch with this guy if I can. Maybe get him on the channel or something. That seems pretty legit. Potato, do you happen to have any questions for me? Yeah, I got a few questions for you. Awesome, let's have them. All right, uh, from G. Wills. Uh, his question was about the Great Commission Churches and Edge Venture. He said a friend of his and him uh, think that they are a cult and want to find a way to expose more harmful aspects of them, and they wanted any advice uh, on how to approach the situation. 
Okay, what was the name of it again? Um, it was Great Commission Churches and Edge Venture. And Edge Venture, huh? Interesting. Mm-hmm. I've never heard of this before. Okay, let me take a look at it. It says, Great Commission Churches is a fellowship of independent evangelical Christian churches. The Great Commission Church movement began in the, U- in the U.S. in 1970. Other associated organizations include Great Commission Ministries, Great Commission Latin America, so on and so forth. So their focus is planting and building churches. Yeah, I've never heard of this before. I might have to take a closer look at this. Seems pretty interesting. I will take a closer look at that and see what it has to say. Do you have another question for me? Uh, sure do. From Gabe, what's the best way to get through someone's religious mindset? I wanted to help someone, but their religious beliefs got in the way. How do you help somebody through a re- religious mindset? Um, I have two videos on my channel called How to Deprogram a Religious Extremist, Parts 1 and 2. And in those videos, I I basically talk about this whole method of getting people to understand where you're coming from and try to find common ground with them so that they can relate to your position. The whole key behind it is to prevent them from putting that guard up. Because the moment they put that guard up, the moment that they think that you're against them in any way, the conversation's over. They're just not interested in taking part, and they're going to try to prove you wrong from that moment on. So the trick is to keep them from thinking that you're against them in any way. Don't make yourself into an enemy. Come at it like you're a friend, like you want to work with them and figure it out together. You want to figure things out together. Ask them questions. Ask them how they know what they know. It's a modified method of Socratic reasoning. I would suggest you watch those videos because I go into more detail in it in those videos than I can here. But uh, that's that's the general idea behind it. So anyway, do you have another question for me? Yeah. Um, Emily was asking, would you ever do a video regarding religious homeschooling and the effects it has on children? Yeah, I have actually. It's been a long, long time since I've done a video on that. Uh, maybe I should do another, but it was actually a collaboration with Godless Engineer probably over a year ago, I'd say, because he went to a Catholic school for a really short time. I think he went to a Catholic school for like a year, two years or something like that when he was in elementary school. But I got his experience with Catholic school. And of course, I was homeschooled for religious reasons in many ways. And and it was kind of a religious basis for everything. And it was ugly. It was just ugly. And honestly, it wasn't even as bad for me as it is for other people. Some people are have an entirely religious curriculum. It's it's just not good at all. And another thing about homeschooling, a lot of the time kids don't get the socialization that they need. It's so extremely important to have socialization when you're a kid. I didn't, and a lot of others don't either. A lot of ex-Jehovah's Witnesses are dealing with the results of being separated from society. People don't realize how intensely Jehovah's Witnesses try to keep their, their children away from the rest of society, if at all possible. It's a problem. So I, I don't think that homeschooling is ever, ever justified. Maybe some fringe exception, some crazy fringe case that would justify homeschooling. Like maybe this kid has so, is so immunocompromised that the moment they enter a room with somebody else, they instantly are under threat of death because of it or something. I can understand cases like that, but 
socialization is extremely important and undervalued. And I think most, the vast majority of kids should be going to public school. Do you have another question for me? Uh, for sure. Niv Mizal just asked, what do you think about the atheist experience? I learned a lot of what I know from the atheist experience. I used to love that show. I, I watched, I've watched every episode up until a certain point. I stopped watching it after a while, uh, just because I kind of lost interest. But I learned a lot about logic and fallacies and all kinds of stuff like that from the atheist experience. And it was one of my motivations for starting my channel in some ways. And I know they've been going through a lot of controversy and drama lately with a lot of different things, but honestly, the ACA and the atheist experience are run by 100% legit people, and they're doing their best, and I respect the hell out of all of them. Matt Dillahunty, Jamie Boone, Eric Murphy, all of them. I respect all of them, and so I would 100% endorse the show and the ACA. I think it's a really good really good group of people. Do you have another question for me? Cass was asking, how do you feel about children being brought up by same-sex couples? I've noticed that Cass has asked me a few questions in the Ask Telltale channel on my Discord. They seem to ask a lot of questions pertaining to my position on LGBT issues. I will just give you a blanket answer right here with any questions that you have regarding LGBT issues. I almost certainly side with the LGBT community. There's absolutely no reason why anybody should be denied adopting children or having children or whatever based on their orientation, period. That's full stop. There's no reason anybody should be denied any kind of rights, marriage rights or anything, based on, on what they want to do in a bedroom with another consenting adult. That's that. That's the bottom line for me. That's as far as I need to go with it. I probably agree with you, Cass, on just about everything on these issues. 100% in support of the LGBT community, bottom line. So anyway, do you have another question? Uh, for sure. Um, Vanceman had just asked, have you seen or heard of a channel called Theramentaries? And if so, what was your opinion on them? I have not. And actually, I see what they're saying here the de uh, he deals in psychological and religious topics concerning psychology i've not heard of that that sounds interesting to me but no um i kind of brand myself as a psychology channel a little bit because i talk about the psychology behind cults and religions in general that kind of thing and i don't really want to what's the word i'm looking for i don't want to cast a wide net that that kicks people out of my content because I talk about something they don't like. I feel like we can all get on board with the fact that cults are ugly and damaging, and we can all get on board with talking about how they do what they do so that we can all avoid it. Pagan, Christian, Muslim, doesn't matter who you are, we can all understand and work against extreme mindsets. So that's, that's kind of where I sit with that kind of thing. As far as psychological and religious topics go, that, that sounds pretty interesting. I'll have to take a look at them. I'm not sure that I would endorse them without watching them, of course. But yeah, that, that does sound pretty cool. Uh, I just wanted to take a look at this article by the friendly atheist Hemant Mehta. And I actually know Hemant Mehta. He's 
pretty cool guy. Um, he knows a lot of people in my circles, too. He knows genetically modified skeptic and godless engineer and just a bunch of people. He's a really, really nice guy. So he runs this blog called Pathios, or on Pathios, I'm sorry. I think that's how you say it, Pathios or Pathios. Anyways, he runs a blog on there. Uh, there are some other people who run blogs on there, too. Godless Mom, Aaron Ra runs one on Pathios, and... He actually, Hemant Mehta writes some really interesting articles on here. This one is called New Alabama Law Allows Christian Church to Create Its Own Police Force. So I just wanted to give this a read real quick. An Alabama church will now get to have its own police force, a perk typically reserved for places like public universities. It's actually a demand that was made two years ago when Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Vestavia Hills wanted permission from state legislators to operate their own cops. So much for the power of prayer. Yeah, that's a good point. The bill passed through the state Senate, but died in the state house. This time, however, with Republican Governor Kay Ivey at the helm, an identical bill sailed through the legislature and got Ivey's signature without a problem. HB 309 was signed into law on Wednesday. It will allow Briarwood Presbyterian Church, Briarwood Christian School, and Madison Academy, a private Christian K-12 school, to establish their own police forces. The whole premise, though, raises so many questions. Why does a church need its own cops? How many horrible things are happening there? Does the state have authority over this police force, especially if something goes wrong? If they do, would they be getting entangled in a church matter? If the police act unlawfully, despite the required training, who has the power to discipline them? Can any religious institution demand its own police force? One lawyer certainly thinks so. Do the police have to sign statements of faith pledging their agreement with the church's beliefs? Can citizens challenge what these cops do? Can they take them to court? Why can't the church, like every other organization, just ask for and rent protection when needed? How does this impact how pastors handle sexual assault allegations? Those are some interesting questions, especially that last one. That's super interesting. How does this impact how pastors handle sexual assault allegations? There is just bias, period. There's bias in those cops just from the outset because they're part of the church. I found uh, a couple of these other questions particularly interesting, too. Um, if the police act unlawfully despite the required training, who has the power to discipline them? Because I know that there's a university near me that has their own police force, too. Uh, and, of course, the university having one, that's a little bit different than a church having one because they have a criminal justice uh, program that you can go through. And a lot of these cops work with the students to teach them a lot of this stuff. I think that the police chief of the university is a professor there and things like that. So it's, it's well-structured, it's well-established, and they work with the city government, uh, the city police force, to enforce laws and and things like that but what authority does a church police force report to that's a conundrum so the article goes on to say policing is problematic enough as it is just wait until the church police begin making headlines and briarwood has a long racist history that doesn't inspire optimism i wonder if they can make their own laws or or their own rules or if the church police force has to just enforce the the laws that exist in the county a lawsuit may already be in the works according to the aclu of alabama randall marshall the executive director of the aclu of alabama says the law could allow the church to cover up 
criminal activity that occurs on its campuses. He expects the law to be challenged in the courts for unconstitutionally granting government power to a religious institution. That is fascinating. That is a really good point. You know this would never get a green light from Alabama politicians if it were a large mosque asking for the same privilege. But remember, in this country, Christians are always allowed to bend the rules in their favor. The new law goes into effect this fall, unless a judge puts a stop to it. I actually found another article on the same thing. So that one was from Hemant Mehta. This one is from NPR. Let me just give this one a, a, a quick glance through. It says... Alabama Governor Kay Ivey signed into law Wednesday a measure granting the Briarwood Presbyterian Church the right to set up its own law enforcement agency to cover its sanctuary, seminary, and sprawling school campuses, despite criticism that the measure was unconstitutional. A similar measure, first proposed four years ago, was dropped in 2017 after opponents argued that it grants government power to a religious institution in violation of the Establishment Clause. Church officials say... They need their own police force to protect its 4,100 members, 2,000 students, and two campuses in neighboring Jefferson and Shelby counties, especially in light of armed attacks on schools and churches. Critics say the megachurch already has private security, and under the new law, it would gain state authority that could be abused if officers are answerable only to church officials. Randall Marshall, the executive director of the ACLU of Alabama, told the Associated Press he expects the law, which goes into effect in the fall, will be challenged in the courts. Other critics say the church, which is a member of the conservative Presbyterian Church in America denomination, which is, um, I think, PCA, uh, which is a member of the conservative Presbyterian Church in America denomination, has a history of racism and homophobia. Church officials said current Alabama state law allows certain educational institutions to appoint and employ one or more suitable persons to act as police officers to keep off intruders and prevent trespass upon the institution property, according to a statement made to WBRC in Birmingham. We are grateful to the governor and our elected officials for approving our request to be added to the existing Alabama law, the statement concluded. So they already have private security that they, they deal with every day. What they are trying to get here is not just people who can protect them. They already have that. What they're looking for is it's a legal police force that is under church control. That's the difference here. They don't just want protection. They want legal control of a police force. That's a little concerning to me. I would absolutely in no circumstances be okay with that. That is disturbing. Anyway, I appreciate you guys coming on. Uh, that is the end of the podcast. I will talk to you guys next week.